In this episode of 750 Mills, some sneaky real estate developers get caught destroying historical architecture, people with broken backs have said broken backs repaired using their own stem cells, and a story about Japan's biggest plastic toy model manufacturing city. All of that, plus this episode's featured track, some parting thoughts from Alexander Den Heyer, and an announcement for listeners who want double the content from 750 Mills, is all coming up right now. Hey everyone, welcome to 750 Mills, the show that's all about bringing you good news, interesting stories, and genuinely useful things to know. My name is Andre, and in this episode, we're going to talk about a couple of stories that have an interesting mix of architecture, culture, history, and even a little bit of justice sprinkled in for good measure. One story each from both sides of the planet. Then, we also have what might possibly be a really huge development on the medical science front, especially for people who've suffered life-altering injuries of different sorts. Let's not make the intro any longer, and let's just get into it. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word Shizuoka? If you thought, what do you say? You're probably not alone. If you thought, that's a Japanese city and it's probably famous for something, isn't it? You've probably done research for a podcast that talks about things like this and you're currently asking a rhetorical question for a hypothetical listener while recording yourself talking about it for said podcast episode and it's getting a little bit too meta right now. Shizuoka is a city in Japan just to the west of the country's capital, Tokyo, and it's home to plastic toy model kit manufacturers like Bandai and Tamiya. And these names might be familiar to you if you watched certain cartoons or anime series on television. Let's paint the picture a little bit more. Plastic model kits, known as puramo in Japanese vernacular, are those things that you buy from a model toy shop that come in boxes containing plastic parts that you put together and paint with the aim of displaying the finished model on your shelf or some sort of mantelpiece once you finish it. These can be anything from scale models of cars, sailing ships, and aircraft, just to name the main types. The pieces for these model kits come attached to these little plastic wireframes that keep them all stackably organized and squared away while in the box. And you just cut the pieces out of these wireframes when you're ready to put them together to build the model. The city of Shizuoka manufactures about 80% of all the plastic toy model kits in the local market. And the reason we're talking about them right now is because they're really leaning into their plastic model roots by installing what they call pura monuments around the city, which are basically things like tourist information signage to functional post boxes and the like. They're actually pretty cool in an old school geeky sort of way. I'll put some images in the show notes so you can check them out. While the city of Shizuoka is locally known for things like Shimizu Port, being said to have the largest haul of tuna in all of Japan, or the cultivation of what's called stonewall strawberries, or Ishigaki Ichigo, strawberries that grow in holes on inclined stone walls, internationally, they've become notable for their plastic scale model kits. Here's an interesting bit of history. Their local model industry started out using wood way back in the late 1920s, using sashimono woodworking joinery techniques. Basically, sashimono is a wood joinery technique that Japanese craftsmen used to create things out of wood and put them together without using nails, 
instead using both simple and highly complex wood joints. These things can be so well done that you wouldn't be able to see them at all from the outside in most large-scale applications. They switched over to plastic after the war, once imported American built-scale models started coming into the country in order to be able to compete with these. The very first plastic toy models overall were first manufactured in 1936 by a company called Frog in the United Kingdom. America would follow suit in the late 1940s and onwards, and then so would the rest of the world. I thought it was interesting that it seems like making plastic toy models in some situations back then might have turned out to be a bit of a happy accident, because it seems like at first, American model companies were making assembled promotional scale models of new cars that would come out each year for the car dealers. These American model companies had a bit of a problem. The injection molds used to create their products for the car dealers were expensive to update each year, and you can just imagine them wanting to get more value for their money and trying to see if they could get more use out of the molds before having to get rid of them for newer ones. So the gears start turning in their heads. What if they could create a side business where they could sell unassembled parts of these models to hobbyists to put together and display? The injection molds could get a lot more use beyond just making some scale models for the car dealers. Now they can make stuff that'll sell to more people out of the same thing before needing to update the means of manufacturing. Wider audience, bigger profit. Thus, the scale model kit business got a nice kickstart. Eventually, this side business, air quotes, would go on to outgrow its original main purpose. You remember that story we talked about back in episode 7 where scientists helped a paralyzed guy walk again using a robotic exoskeleton? The one where they had to train him to use a brain-to-machine interface just to be able to walk, all the while being limited to a room where the robotic frame that he straps to his body can operate in. That story was something that was equal parts amazing, while at the same time maybe might be leaving the guy wanting more. Even though it's amazing how far technology has come and how much it can help people through external mechanical means, there's still a lot of limits to what it can do. There are limits on computing power. There are limits because of how expensive it all is. And we still have to figure out how to make all of this stuff efficient enough and safe enough to be of any practical use. It feels like it's still years, maybe decades away from being a practical reality that would make it accessible enough to people who might need it in general. But what if you didn't need all of that technology in the first place? What if you could help somebody paralyzed walk again without using technology to solve that particular disability? And by technology here, I mean uh, external means like robotic frames and like. This is apparently what some scientists from Yale University and Japan have been able to do. According to a new study that came out on the 18th of February 2021 in the Journal of Clinical Neurology and Neurosurgery. Basically, the scientists intravenously injected bone marrow-derived stem cells, MSCs for short, in patients with spinal cord injuries, and this led to significant improvement in their motor functions. The type of injuries that these patients had were of the non-penetrating spinal cord injury type, the kind you might be able to get from, say, false or minor trauma. Their symptoms involved loss of motor function and coordination, sensory loss, as well as bowel and bladder dysfunction, which I believe is fancy talk, which refers to your ability to go number one or number two, as well as you probably should when you want to. This is how they did it, according to the report by Yale News. Quote, 
The stem cells were prepared from the patient's own bone marrow via a culture protocol that took a few weeks in a specialized cell processing center. The cells were injected intravenously in this series, with each patient serving as their own control. Results were not blinded and there were no placebo controls. End quote. Within a few weeks, the patients improved significantly in some key ways, such as the ability to walk or the patients being able to use their hands once again. Also quite significant is the fact that there weren't any huge side effects reported. The study was carried out in Sapporo Medical University in Japan, and the senior authors of the study, Yale scientists Jeffrey D. Coxis, professor of neurology and neuroscience, and Stephen G. Waxman, professor of neurology, neuroscience, and pharmacology, said this, quote, Similar results with stem cells in patients with stroke increases our confidence that this approach may be clinically useful. This clinical study is a culmination of extensive preclinical laboratory work using MSCs between Yale and Sapporo colleagues over many years. The idea that we may be able to restore function after injury to the brain and spinal cord using the patient's own stem cells has intrigued us for years. Now we have a hint, in humans, that it may be possible. End quote. Maybe we won't need robotic exoskeletons to help paralyzed people walk again after all. Maybe the answers already lie within our own bodies. Now that would be pretty amazing. Hey folks, welcome to The Break, and I am happy to announce that you can now get double the amount of good news, interesting stories, and useful things to know. Basically, you can get two extra episodes of content like you normally do with the main podcast, but with video. If you decide to help support the podcast by subscribing to 750 Mills' new premium membership, for the price of one coffee a month, just one, you get double the good stuff plus video. Don't worry though, if you're not too happy about the idea of looking at my face while we talk about news and interesting stories, each episode will also have an audio-only version that you can download and keep forever. That's just at the start though. As time goes by and the more premium members support the show, I want to give you guys more episodes, both for the free main podcast itself as well as even more premium content. So please go ahead and check it out by going to www.750ml.fm and clicking on the announcement post for the new show, which is called The Update with 750 Mills. Also, stay tuned till the end of this episode if you want to test the waters before diving in, and I'll tell you how you can get the first episode for free. Anyway, back to the show. Here's a story about what happens when somebody tries to tear something down that they shouldn't have. The Carlton Tavern is a pub in Kilburn, northwest London, built in 1921. It replaced another pub on the same site that was destroyed by a bomb during an air raid by the Germans in 1918, as the First World War was going on. As it turns out, later on the Carlton Tavern was the only building in its street to survive the Blitz in the Second World War. Now, what exactly is notable about this pub besides surviving World War II? Here's what the spokesperson for the organization Historic England said, quote, The site was remarkably well-preserved externally and internally. It displayed the hierarchy of rooms in their fixtures, fittings, and decorative treatment and retained all its external signage. Few pubs were built at this date and fewer survive unaltered, end quote. So, a century-old pub that retains its character, design, and of course history, straight from the 1920s. I think we can appreciate why this might be a valuable and locally appreciated fixture in its own corner of London. 
a city that itself is known for its architecture and its overall larger historicity. In fact, in 2015, the Carlton Tavern was being considered for Grade 2 listing by Historic England. What does that mean? Well, Historic England, first and foremost, is an organization created by the British government in 1983, albeit under a different name, English Heritage, and its main job is protecting the historic environment of England by preserving and listing historic buildings, scheduling ancient monuments, registering historic parks and gardens, and by advising central and local government. They can mark historically significant structures as being listed buildings. And here's what Historic England says about them. Quote, Listing marks and celebrates a building's special architectural and historic interest, and also brings it under the consideration of the planning system so that it can be protected for future generations. The older a building is, and the fewer the surviving examples of its kind, the more likely it is to be listed. End quote. A grade 2 listing means that the Carlton Tavern would be considered a building that is of special interest, warranting every effort to preserve it according to that designation. That's what the pub was being considered for back in April 2015. Historic England was about to recommend that Carlton Tavern be given a grade 2 listed status. But, two days before they could actually do that, the owner of the property, a development company based in Tel Aviv, Israel, decided to start demolishing the pub. Here's the thing. The story of the Carlton Tavern isn't the only one of its kind. This type of story has happened before, and it seems to have a common pattern to it. A formula, if you will. Let's say a property developer has plans to create a modern building. Maybe something with a bit more potential for profit, like a block of flats with some spaces at the bottom for a commercial interest or two. Problem is, there's a historic building or structure involved, and the developer just can't get rid of it with a lot of hullabaloo. You might think, Ah, let's just get rid of it anyway. Pay whatever fine they give us and we'll make it up with the earnings we're going to get with a new building. Or, they try something sneakier. And here's how they do it, according to James Watson, pub protection advisor for the Campaign for Pubs. Quote, Most developers tend to be slightly smarter than sending in the bulldozers. The age-old trick is to take some tiles off the roof and let the rain in. The beams rot, it collapses. And they say to the council, this is a derelict site that needs to be rebuilt as flats. End quote. So the owner slash developer of the property where the Carlton Tavern stands decided, while knowing the historicity of the pub and that it was being considered to be a listed building, to tear it down anyway and just pay the fine. Everybody's doing it, so why shouldn't they, right? The local community gets angry, they get a slap on the wrist from the government, and they get their nice new building on top of the historically valuable rubble, and they earn enough to recoup the fine, and then some. They had previously been denied permission to build a block of flats too, so they knew what they were doing. Two days before the pub would be recommended for listing, the developers sent in the bulldozers and started tearing it down, exposing the fully stocked 1920s-style interiors of the pub, sending the local council's planning enforcement officers running over to the site, which was the start of what the developers probably expected would be just the usual uproar that would end in the way things usually did when things like this happened. But they didn't see this plot twist coming. After a six-year campaign involving about 5,300 locals through the rebuild of the Carlton Tavern campaign and several local councillors, the Westminster Council ordered the property developers to rebuild the Carlton Tavern brick by brick. 
James Watson said something that probably a lot of other people were also thinking. Quote, I never imagined that I would see a planning inspector order a developer to put back what he just knocked down to look exactly as it was. I thought the developer would get a slap on the wrist, a 6,000 pound fine, but I was flabbergasted and it has set an incredibly useful precedent. Other planning inspectors will remember it and so will developers. End quote. Today, the tavern is scheduled to reopen once lockdown eases here in London. It'll be stocked by and serving goods from local London breweries like Camden Town Brewery, Five Points from Hackney, the London Brewing Company, and Anspach and Hobday. They're also looking to be a place where anyone can drop in for some good food. Here's what one of the new leaseholders, Tom Reese, says. Quote, We want it to be a great little boozer where you can come and have some pints of cask any day of the week, but we'll also have a nice dining area out the back. We hope we can be everything to everyone. It's nice to know that a little bit of history will be with us for a bit longer. Plus, good food too. Anyway, it's time for this episode's featured track, a song that was originally written and released in 1988 called Love Will Set Us Free from a band called The Dawn. But the version I'm linking here is their remastered recording of it from 2006. It's an up-tempo rocker of a song that makes great use of a loud, soft, loud dynamic that builds up to an epic end all in a compact four minutes and change. It's a good song. You should listen to it. That's it for this episode of 750 Mills. Make sure you head on over to 750mills.fm to check out links to stuff we've talked about here. That includes a feature track that we just mentioned. You can subscribe and listen to the podcast on podomatic.com, Spotify, Deezer, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music Podcasts, and wherever podcasts might be found. Just type in 750ML Podcast in the search box and tap on the follow or subscribe button, whichever one appears in your search results. Links to all that will be in the show notes for the episode as well, which you can find on 750ml.fm. That is 750ml.fm. And if you've been enjoying it so far, please consider leaving a star rating and review on the podcast platform that you use to listen to 750 Mills. And finally, don't forget to check out the announcement post for the new premium show, The Update with 750 Mills, and see how you can get the very first episode for free. So head on over to www.750ml.fm or subscribe to the 750 Mills Telegram channel. Hint, hint. And of course, if you'd really like to support the podcast, you can get a premium membership for the price of one cup of coffee a month, and you get double the amount of good stuff to dig into. Anyway, folks, thanks for hanging out with me, and I'll leave you with a thought from Alexander Den Heyer on why you might feel so tired all of the time. Here's what he said. You often feel tired, not because you've done too much, but because you've done too little of what sparks a light in you. Hope you have a good day. Take care now.